Welcome to Donor Conception Conversations. This is the one podcast created exclusively for people who are planning to use donor conception to build their family or for people who have already built their family with donor conception. I'm your host. My name is Lisa Schumann. I'm a researcher, a therapist, and an expert in donor conception. And over my more than two decades of experience working both in fertility clinics and in my private practice, the Center for Family Building, I've met with thousands of donor-conceived individuals, children, recipients, and donors. And I've learned so much, and I'm here to teach you all that I've learned in this podcast. My guests and I will talk about everything that you need to know to have a better journey to parenthood. If it's about donor conception, we're going to talk about it. And today, I am very fortunate to have Dr. Frederick Lucciardi here to talk to us about lots of things about donor conception. And before we do, I'd like you to listen to something. And if I make it back alive, I'm going to take a wife. I'm going to live my And that, everyone, was Dr. Latorte's other talent, which is he's a fantastic musician. You can find him on Spotify and see what I'm talking about. He has beautiful, wonderful music that is really touching to me and very moving and musically incredible. So check it out. But first, I just want to mention that Dr. Lachardi is a professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at NYU Langone Fertility Center, which is also part of the Prelude Network. He is a practicing reproductive endocrinologist, where he's also director of the Fellowship Program of Reproductive Endocrinology. He has numerous clinical articles that have been published in the Journal of Assisted Reproduction and Genetics, Obstetrics and Gynecology, Fertility and Sterility, which is kind of our Bible, and Reproductive Endocrinology. He has been recognized by the American Fertility Association for his dedication to his treatment of infertile patients, and he's the author of an award-winning infertility blog. He served on the board also as of the Society of Assisted Reproductive Technologies, just to name a few of his shining achievements and his decades of amazing work. So I would like to just let um, the audience know that uh, Dr. Lachardi has been around for decades, and he's an amazing doctor. And when I saw his presentation at the donor egg meeting where we both presented, I was really amazed by some of this information, which I'm sure you'll be really interested in hearing about too. So welcome, Dr. Lachardi. Thank you so much for coming. Well, thank you very much. I mean, very nice introduction. Thank you very much. It's, um, it's really nice to be here. I'm really looking forward to speaking to your group. I love giving information. You know, when I see patients, I give them my email address directly. I just hand it to them. Wow. And I tell them all. I say, listen, I don't care if you email me twice a day. I don't. And people think I'm joking because giving people information just gives them so much, you know, power and it gives them a way to think in, on a rational level, you know, it's, so it's really nice. And it's a little bit selfish on my part. I tell them, listen, it's a little selfish because I don't like my patients to be upset. My, my life is easier <laughs> if your mm-hmm. life is easier. So it's, so uh, nice. it's just a really nice practice. It's, I'm really grateful for all, all, all of my patients. And uh, thank you for touching on my music. It's, it's really is a compliment because as an artist, you know, medicine is so 
it's not artistic. I mean, they always talk about medicine being an art, an art, more of an art than a science. And I don't like when people say that because really it is a science. And then the more science you know and you understand in medicine, actually, the better doctor you are. That's how I believe it. But I got really inspired by, uh, we had a lecture at NYU a number of years ago, and a, a man came in who used to be an orthopedic spine surgeon, and he converted to a photographer. And the one thing that struck out in my mind, he says, as a photographer, you can make a mistake. And as a doctor, you can't. Hmm. And he says, actually, a lot of your mistakes turn out to be really good things in art. And in medicine, that doesn't happen. So I joke mm. with my wife sometimes because I go downstairs in the basement and I write songs. She goes, where are you going? I said, I'm going to go make some mistakes. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And then it turns into a really nice thing. So uh, anyway, thanks. Thanks for having me. That's wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I hope everyone goes to Spotify and uh, checks out your music because it's really terrific. So for today, I, I was curious uh, about your thoughts about this yes or no with with genetic screening. And of course, you know, lots of people say yes, other people say no. Some people say, well, the patient has to decide. And we've had, you know, all sorts of different opinions. And I was really interested in your talk because you brought up some really important points for people to understand, I think. It's a very important topic, but I think at the same time, it's a topic that doesn't really get much thought. So what I mean by that, so let's just go into some of the history. Pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, there's always been controversy about its value in young patients and old patients, donor. Are you getting the right results? Is it accurate? Is there damage to your embryo? Is, you know, there's pros and cons. And does it increase your, your chance of actually having a baby? Does it improve your overall take-home baby rate? I mean, that's really what it's all about, right? So, you know, we published a number of years ago. Uh, we were the first ones to publish on the outcome of preimplantation genetic testing in a donor egg, specifically in a donor egg cycle. And we looked at uh, those who patients who did and those patients who didn't. And we had like a large series. It was 400 patients in total in all of our, in, in our groups. And we found that the outcome, the baby rate, was no different if you did preimplantation genetic testing or not. So that, that actually raises some questions because if you look at donors who undergo the testing, like recipients who ask those embryos to be tested, at least 30% of the embryos that are tested come back abnormal. And it could be 40 or 50%, depending mm-hmm. on the lab, some new information there we can talk about. So how could it be that we know we're weeding out a good proportion of bad embryos. These are embryos that have extra chromosomes, missing chromosomes, Down syndrome, and and the like. And if we know we're weeding those out, how come we're not upping our game? How come we're not offering the patients who do the testing a higher delivery rate? It doesn't really make sense, and it still doesn't make sense. So the possible places to point are, well, when you do embryo testing, it is rather invasive. You know, we have this beautiful... 100 cell embryo, and we're going we're gonna to really get, be going to be aggressive with it. We're going to take a laser. We're going to open up the shell. We're going to take a grasper. We're going to go in there and pluck off five of those cells. Now we're going to freeze the embryo, and that may have not ha- otherwise happened. So others are certain steps. Plus, those cells have to be analyzed. In my lecture, I said, you know, it's like finding these results, you might say, is like finding a needle in a haystack, but it's mm. really even more complicated than that. It's like finding a needle in the universe. It's wow. really, it, 
you know, we just, we see this output, but what goes behind the scenes as far as all these software programs and analytics and high level mathematics, including, including artificial intelligence now that goes into analyzing this embryo, you know, it gets better all the time, but there probably are some flaws along the way that we haven't recognized yet. So that's our study. There was a study before ours, just looking at a much smaller group. We looked at single embryo transfers, which is very valuable because there's other factors that go into people getting pregnant or not. How many embryos are you putting in? What's So before us, there was a smaller study that showed the same thing. There was a study that looked at what's called the SART data. So every IVF cent, most IVF centers in the country have to report their data to a central location, which is uh, overseen by the government. And that data is actually accessible to researchers. So someone went into that database, now tons of thousands of cases, and same thing, reported that there was no difference in outcome if you're doing the testing or not. Hmm. So, and there have been other studies since and other similar studies, which all point to the same thing. So that being said, where are we? So is test, should it be done? Is it being done? Well, the fact is that the testing is being done in a large number, over 50% of cases of, of, of families that are doing egg donation and they, they're testing their embryos. And I think there's reasons for it. And I, I think one of the main reasons is, listen, I've been infertile for X number of years. You know, I'm spending X number of dollars to make this happen. And if you're telling me that there's an additional cost, which is not huge compared to everything else I'm spending, and you're telling me that there might be some abnormal embryos in there that I can weed out, then why wouldn't I do that? That just, right. that I, I don't, I'm, I've been so fearful. I've already had miscarriages. I've already had failures. Yes. Why can't I just get, I just want to get that test done for peace of mind because if I don't do it and I have a problem, I just don't want to put myself in that position. Right. So I think the good news is, is that I don't think testing is harmful. Like no one has shown that testing gives you a worse result and you might reduce your miscarriage rate a little bit. You know, miscarriage rate is going to be low anyway, because you're dealing with a young embryo. But I just, if, if you're wondering what I tell my patients, I tell my patients an abbreviated you know, version of this story. And I just say, the data just shows you don't have to test. So my recommendation is not testing. I don't say you can't test, test, but I say, listen, you don't need, the data is very clear. You don't need it. But still many, many patients go on to have the testing. Now, you know, we didn't touch on this yet, but if you're going to use a gestational carrier, then I think it makes more sense to test because now you're even spending more money and now you have a logistical problem, right? You have this donor who's only available at this certain amount of time in a certain segment and, you know, you don't want to lose her, et cetera, et cetera. And even though I'm telling you, it probably doesn't matter, even if there's a slight chance of a higher rate of miscarriage or it's probably better to test, especially because you're going to hold on to these embryos long-term. You know, you might have to hold on to these embryos for six or 12 or 18 months before you tra tra transfer them. Yeah. And you might some have, have some abnormals in there. It does happen. But if you're transferring them into yourself, you know, we don't want this to happen. But, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're not pregnant, you can maybe get some more eggs and try again. Whereas if you're using a carrier, the schedule is so tight. It's very hard just to say, okay, hold on. I need a couple more months. I need to get some more eggs and embryos. And then I need to have you come back. You know, she's mm -hmm. going to find another 
person yes. to get it. She should. That's her. That's her right. So if you're storing them for yourself or for a carrier, you know, longer term, then I think it does make sense to test under those. Uh, you know, more sense. I, I'm, I'm more strongly an advocate of testing um, in in under those circumstances. That's really interesting. And I think just just to kind of back up for a moment, I think people also would be interested to hear with SART, it's not just available to doctors, it's available to patients. So anyone who's watching this can look up success rates on the CDC website, on the ASRM website. And uh, Dr. Lachardi brought up a very good point. That's, that, that's really valuable information to have too. Yeah. If you go to the SART website, which is SART.org, and then you'll see find a clinic, that part's easy. However, it's really not that easy to assimilate the data. They do make it rather confusing, like hideously mm -hmm. confusing, seriously. So if you do have a doctor, it's it's might be nice or a counselor to go on that with somebody else so they can kind of guide you through. There's different parts of the website and they all have different rates and they're all calculated different ways. And it is is it is very, very confusing. And a little bit behind the times. And a little awesome. bit behind the times. Yeah. That's right. But it's still there. So that's that's nice to know. True. Well, that that's really helpful for people to understand. And thank you for that. Uh, and I, I think people will be relieved to hear that either way, they're not doing anything wrong. If they're testing or not testing, that they still have a very good chance with donor eggs of having a very successful pregnancy. What would you say about the take-home baby rate approximately with donor eggs is now? You're still at about 50 to 60% per embryo that you put in. So you have to get the eggs and fertilize them growing and everything. And that varies a little bit because even though your doctor might tell you, hey, you have an embryo, embryo quality varies. You know, some embryos, even though an embryo might look good, there's, it's possible it could look better or worse. So there's some sliding scale there based on just how many cells it has and how, how, how it's growing. There still is some clinic to clinic variation. You could find that on SART under the donor egg pages. But overall, you know, compared to the pregnancy rate that most recipients are facing without donor egg, you know, if they have eggs, first of all, some of them don't, but if they do have eggs and they're in their, you know, mid forties and they're going to do in vitro and make one or two eggs at a time, you know, their rate on their own might be anywhere from five to 10%. So it's, it's literally an order of magnitude higher than it is if they were going to try on, on their own, with their own eggs. And I think that, you know, everyone, right, everybody's evolution is different where they can get to a place where they can use an egg donor. But certainly it is reassuring to know that the sex success rates are so much higher and also you have a better chance of having a healthy baby, right? So that's, it's so nice for, for people to have this option. And, and what about the donors that you've seen? You've seen so many donors, probably thousands over all of the years. What would you say makes a good donor? And what should people be looking for? It's a great question. And the answer is, is I think the answer is a lot more simple than most people take it out to be. So what's a good donor? So donors, first of all, every donor, every single donor in the country has to fit a minimal has to fulfill a minimal screening requirement. And this is dictated by the federal government. Egg donation is actually a device. So it's regulated under the FDA. So the FDA will come into my office and do an inspection. Oh my God, talk about stress, but we always do well. 
So what is that? That's HIV, hepatitis. You know, those are the infectious diseases, right? So that's, that's, so that's one part. The other part is the age of the donor, right? Most donors are under 32, 33 years of age. It's interesting in that we would, and there were, we would really like to use donors who were 34, 35, because their outcome is still really, really good. Hmm. But a lot, for a lot of recipients, it's hard to take a donor who's 35, because you may not be much older than that person, even though she might have a ton of eggs at 35. So most programs keep it 32, 31 and under. Mm-hmm. So there you go. So that's a checkbox, right? And then you want to have a donor who is going to make eggs, but that actually should be, and your, your clinic should talk to you about that. That should be screened out by the doctors because the doctors don't want to give you a donor that doesn't make a lot of eggs. They don't want you to be upset. They want, they're worried about their pregnancy. They want you to be happy, but there might be some variation. And the way you analyze that the way that's analyzed is two methods. One is what's called an antral follicle count. So this is an ultrasound that's performed to literally count up the eggs. Now we can't count up all the eggs, but the ones that we see are the ones that we can get. These are the ones that are more mature. So a donor typically has an antral follicle count of around 20, meaning when we do her egg, her retrieval after drug stimulation in vitro, we're expecting to get about 20 eggs. And that could vary from 15 to 25 to 12 or whatever it is. So you should know that when you talk to your, hey, what's this dot? What, what was her antral follicle? You know, is she going to produce eggs? So that's important. Other things which you can't always go by, but history. You know, did this donor come through before? Did, how was her egg production? How was her embryo production? Was there a child born? You, and you may or may not be able to get that information. You know, we used to call this the, the proven donor. Has she been successful before? On that, I, I tell my patients, listen. It's not always easy to find a donor. And if you find a donor that you really think is the one, like really outstanding compared to the other ones that you've, you know, evaluated, and she's not proven, and this is her first time, I would still use her because she seems important to you. And, you know, the chance of a donor being a dud, so to speak, is like 5%. So just just go with her odds. You're going to be fine. And uh, if, if really this is the donor that you want, if you're, if you're more loose about your requirements, like, and, you know, they all seem good to me or this one, they, these two are equal, then it, it might be nice to go with the one that's been proven. But if you really like her, I, I would choose her either way. All right. So that's that. And then there's the more specific choices, you know, height, weight. Many like organizations, many agencies might offer you an SAT score or some sort of college transcript. We never did that at NYU, actually. And I would tell my patients, listen, you just really need to know what she's doing, you know, her accomplished. Like, what is she doing? Does she have goals? Is she directed? Is she successful in what she's doing? And if that's the case, then those other tests probably are not, they're not really helpful. Not everyone who has a good SAT score is successful or driven, et cetera. But th- those are choices that you can make. I understand that. I like to bring in the story that I talk about and that I say, listen, the women, the couples, the people who are more lax in a good way with choosing very specific donor criteria, I say, you should take a lesson from the women who already have children. Because the women who come in to do donor egg, who already have children, the vast majority of them, you start talking about characteristics, they're like, I don't even need to hear it. 
Hmm. Like, I'll take, don't worry, I'll take care of the characteristics. Hmm. That's my job. Just get me an egg. I'll, I'll take care of the rest. They are very confident. They are very knowledgeable. They are very aware about the nature versus the nurture. And of course, the nature is going to have a little, you know, we can't rule out everything. But I tell that to my couples who are struggling with all these details who have never been pregnant. And I think it helps them. I think they, they kind of say, look, you're, and I always tell people, you're picking your donor. You're not picking your baby. You are not right. picking your baby. You're, pick, you're picking, you know, some of the genetic contributor, some of it. Yes. To yes. Your baby. And look at all our, look at, you know, just look at the families around you. You know, are siblings different from one another? Are kids different than their parents? You know, there's similarities, of course, of course, of course, but maybe not as many as you think they are. And then the other thing, you know, is people, people want to get it. This is this. I always find this funny. I love it when women come in with their babies who have done donor egg. And in most cases, the recipient will say he or she looks like me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or someone will tell them who doesn't know they did donor or whatever, right. oh, looks just like you. Right. And what's going on there, I don't think it's because they picked you know, their doppelhanger, whatever right. it's called. I think it's because there's probably a thousand facial features, right? And all you have to do is have one of them and you're a lookalike. Exactly. So- Maybe the nose is a little bit like yours, looks just like you. Maybe the eyebrows are a little bit like yours, looks just like you. Mm-hmm. You know, the mouth, the lips, whatever. They pick out, all you have to do is find one thing and you're, you're a dead ringer. Right, exactly, exactly. So I, I find a lot of joy in that because the, the moms are really like, they, they feel like, whew, yeah, they're a little relieved like when they hear that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. So anyway, that just getting back to how specific and detailed you need to be, you know, on making, you know, this choice. Listen, everyone's got their own, everyone's entitled to make their own choice, but it's nice if we can help you at least reduce some of your stress associated with these choices. Talking about that, I think, you know, like we're talking about what makes people comfortable, right? Is this person look like me? Is this person somebody that I like? And as you said, you're not picking your child, you're picking your donor. But what about all of the other factors? Is this person, you know, young enough? Do they are they healthy enough? Is their family healthy enough? I mean, you're already picking from a very good pool because they've already been been pre-screened, right? And so they're picking from a good pool already, but how do people kind of weigh that? So I tell people, listen, you're you're in the donor egg business now and being in the donor egg business means that you have to accept some uncertainty. You know, listen, this is the truth. If you think that every single donor who's ever donated has been 100% truthful in her application, then it's just not the case. And we know that. Yeah. So what can we do? We can screen. I said, a, I said, I tell people a huge, huge red flag to us is consistency. All right. Because that donor is not just meeting Dr. Lachardi. That donor is meeting an assistant, a front desk person. She's mm-hmm. meeting a number of nurses, coordinators. She's meeting a whole team, the psychologist. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So we know, we hear the stories. You know, she's telling one person one thing and somebody else another thing. We know that. And that is just, uh, you're out the door, right? That's a huge, yeah. huge red flag. Yeah. 
And I, you know, I do tell people, listen, I've seen so many donors. I said, I just have to tell you, they're just very sincere people. They're very kind people. When my daughter went to NYU 10 years ago, I calculated that $10,000 paid for about eight weeks of her being there. <laughs> and now it's probably six, right? right. With inflation. Right. So I said, no one's getting rich on donate. They're not going to buy a fur coat and a Ferrari. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to maybe pay some bills. So the point is, if money were the driving factor of a don't, and I do say, listen, if they weren't getting paid, they, they would be much less likely to do it. Okay, that I get. But if you think money is the driving factor, we wouldn't have waiting lists. We would have, it would, we would have donors lining up around the block to try to get in here to get this cash payment. Mm -hmm. It was taxable income. Yeah. So I just have been privileged, really, and honored to have these women come into my office who want to help somebody. It's not easy for them. They're doing, they're taking two weeks of drugs. They're taking, they're getting side effects. They're getting, having anesthesia, getting put to sleep. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really unbelievable what they do. So you're, you're getting an amazing person. You're, you know, is there this woman who's just like, we've all heard the stories and I'm not going to deny them. There are probably some donors out there that have donated 20 times. They move from clinic to clinic, they cash mm -hmm. in, they move on, they cash in, they move on, they cash in, they move on. It's probably true. Yeah. But maybe they're nice people. <laughs> right. Yep. And maybe they're nice people anyway. And right. before they get to the, to the process where they can donate... Can you explain what they go through in, in order to be screened? Because I'm sure there's probably many donors you see who say, gosh, you know, she's a lovely girl. I wish I could pass her, but I can't. So the screening. All right. So it starts with an application. This is pretty similar for most clinics. For every application, you, if you get 10 applications, maybe you get one donor out of that. Hmm. So just screening on the application is really important. And what are we looking for? We're looking for age. We're looking for reproductive history. We're looking for health history. We're looking for psychiatric history, medications, all those things. So when we see an application that we like, we invite the donor in. So she'll have an interview. She'll have this basic testing, the HIV stuff, the make sure she has eggs. Then she'll have an interview with our psychologist. And she also has, she'll take uh, the MMPI. So she'll take a, a written psychological evaluation. Mm -hmm. which isn't that easy to, to fake, actually. Right. So that's that. We want to make sure her height and her weight are okay, you know, standard stuff. And then one that, once that's all good to go, providing she passes, and of the people who come in to see us, about half of those end up being donors. Wow. So some of them don't pass the screening. Some of them change their mind. Being a donor screener, as when I was the director of the program, was a very, very frustrating operation hmm. because you're spinning your wheels a lot. You're taking a lot of people in and you're not getting a lot of people through. Hmm. So a lot of just on that, you know, just so the recipients understand a lot of that is happening on their behalf. So that's it. And that, that, that's the screening and, and away we go. Not only do we do a, this genetic screen where we're checking them for 500 genetic diseases, a genetic counselor is also speaking to that because there's a lot more diseases out there than 500. Yes. And so there's a lot of information just in that family tree, going back to the grandparents and the nieces and the nephews, you find a lot of thing in that 
in that tree that a lot of times the genetic testing was normal, but the tree was not adequate. And so they are not included. Well, I think that's really helpful for everyone to hear because when they see their donor, the donor pool, you're already kind of getting the cream of the crop. They're already been through, there's been such a nutrition in getting to that place. So there's been, those are really the people who are the healthiest, who probably could produce the best eggs, who are most likely to produce a good amount of eggs and are probably really solid genetically. Exactly right. Yeah. And that can be hard, I think, particularly in the known donor situations where people say, well, I have this best friend or I have this cousin and I'd really like to use them for an egg donor. And is it tough for you being in the situation where you know, well, our egg donors can give these people you know, a better chance, higher chance for successful pregnancy, healthier baby than this friend whom they may like very much, but maybe the friend's older or has genetic difficulties or has, you know, mental illness or serious, significant health issues in their family. It, it is tricky. So the first thing I tell people is the biggest, and it's, it's hard to hear this until you're deep in, but number one, and you've heard at the same lectures we've been to, you've heard the lawyers say, you know, the number one site source for litigation in a donor situation is, an, is a family member. Family members are more likely to sue than non-family members yeah, or, or known acquaintances. So it's a problem. However, it can, you know, it can work out, but it's all about getting informed. In other words, this friend of yours is going to go through the same screening, especially on the psychological side, and things are going to come up. And as long as it's disclosed to you, and then you can decide if you want to you know, have that person donate to you or not. On the psychological side, there's, it's not just she meets with the psychologist. It's you meet with the psychologist with her at the same time. You're all mm -hmm. in the same room. You're all talking about things you never wanted to talk about, but it's really important for these things to surface initially in the beginning. So, you know, those situations are doable, but they, it, they more often than not start with best intentions. And then for some reason, they just fizzle away. Like, especially on the sperm donor side, so many women come in and say, I have a friend who wants to donate sperm. And I, I, I'm not mean about it, but I'm really not. But I have so much experience where this has worked out zero times in my practice, zero. I just say, listen, you're welcome to do it. But in my experience, by the time you get to the lawyers and the contracts and figure out all that stuff, it's not worth it. Everyone, everyone who's come in telling me that story uses an anonymous donor. But if you want, maybe one or two exceptions. So if you want to start down that road, it's fine with me. But I can tell you, you it, it may just be a, a waste of time. So you let me know. <laughs> There's so many potential problems and it's so complicated, right, to have a known donor. So I think it's really helpful to kind of think through these things. And of course, you know, people have good intentions. They think, oh, well, this will work out beautifully. But, you know, even in marriages, not all marriages work out. So it's hard to kind of think about that when you're in the middle of it. But this is really helpful information. Thank you so much, Dr. Lachardi. Are, are there any other things that you think our, our audience should know about donor conception that we haven't touched on yet? The people who do it, it is amazing how happy they are. Hmm. Nice. First of all, there's so many reasons. These kids turn out to be like superstars. Why? Because they have amazing parents or an amazing parent. Hmm. Why is that parent amazing? Because she's older, because the couple's older. Makes a huge difference in mm -hmm. raising you. You have your own 
personal life. You have your own business interactions, right? You know how to deal with people. You know how not to sweat the stupid little things. You know how to focus on what's important. Mm-hmm. And that just shows in the way that these kids are raised. It's unbelievable. They're wanted, but be beyond, you know, obviously parents get tortured to have <laughs> these kids. Yeah. So that's there, but it's not for everybody, right? This is a select group. These are people who came to me saying, this is what I want to do. I have a lot of infertility patients who are in their forties who haven't gotten pregnant on their own. We talk about donor egg. They say, I don't want to do that. That's okay. You know, it's not for everybody. Right. But for those people who are like, who are like, you know, there's certain things about, you know, being a parent of a donor egg that's making me a little bit nervous. You should talk to people who have done it and see the beauty of what's happening here. I mean, you're building a family. It's unbelievable. Again, it's not for everybody, but the end result is it's actually very difficult to describe how wonderful it is. That's so nice. For those of you listening today, I don't only do donor egg. I do all sorts of infertility. So you're welcome to see me for whatever you'd like to see. And if you would like to find me on Spotify, it's it's new. So you have to specifically type type in just Fred Lachardi, Fred Lachardi together, and then it'll pop up because it's the algorithms are, are still trying to find me. But I do appreciate the opportunity to talk about that. So thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. And my pleasure to have you here. And thank you for all your information and the encouragement. I think it's such a hard time for people to kind of get through this process and to hear those words that it turns out beautiful and you're going to have a beautiful family. is really so nice um, and a beautiful place for us to end on. So thank you so much. And can people find you through NYU Langone Prelude or how do they find you? If you just put in Frederick Lachardi or Fred Lachardi or Dr. Lachardi, that, you know, my medical stuff pops up right away. You'll find me right away. Okay, terrific. All right. And for everyone out there, thanks for coming today. And please subscribe because that's how we keep going. And that's how you'll learn about all our new episodes. So thanks very much. And I'll see you next time. Thank you.